0: Explicit instruction, engagement, and the gradual release of responsibility. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back-end production This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and I'm very glad to have you with us for this episode. Whatever your uh, instructional or learning context, I hope you are doing well. I hope you are happy. I hope you are healthy. If this is your first time on the show and you enjoy what we talk about, I'd appreciate if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive this content. That will help others find the show. If this isn't your first time with us and you've been around a while, I would appreciate it if you share this episode with a friend or colleague that you feel may benefit. Again, the purpose of the show is working to bridge literacy research into practice, and we're doing that by talking with folks who are doing the research, who are publishing the papers, who have insight to the, the nuance of how this can be applied effectively in instructional contexts. I'm very excited about today's show. We're talking with Dr. Dana A. Robertson about explicit instruction, and he wrote a chapter entitled Explicit Instruction in the book Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction. We've had a couple other interviews uh, from that book. Uh, You can go back and listen to episode 27 that talked about teachers as lifelong learners with Dr. Julie Ingram and Dr. Amy Morwood. And we also talked with Dr. Seth Parsons in episode 24 about the principles of effective literacy instruction. It's a great text, very teacher friendly. I recommend checking it out. And today we're talking with Dr. Dana Robertson about his chapter entitled Explicit Instruction. Dana A. Robertson is an associate professor at Virginia Tech School of Education, where he leads the reading and literacy education program. Dr. Robertson is a former classroom teacher, literacy specialist, and literacy coach, And his research focuses on classroom discourse and oral language comprehension instruction, reading and writing challenges literacy coaching and teacher professional learning. I'll also point out he has a recent edited volume entitled Innovations in Literacy Professional Learning Strengthening Equity Access and Sustainability, which he co-edited with Lee A. Hall and Cynthia H. Brock that you may want to check out as well. Thank you again for being with us for this episode, and make sure after the conversation to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Dana Robertson, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really my pleasure to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have you on the show as well. We are talking about your chapter entitled Explicit Instruction from the book Principles of Effective Literacy Instruction. We've had a couple other guests from the show come and talk about their specific chapters from that book. And when I read this book initially, your chapter was one that stuck out to me you know, very, very clearly as, oh, this is a great description of explicit instruction and why it matters. So before we dig into the chapter, Will you provide a a brief overview of who you are, how you became interested in explicit instruction, and then your uh, experience with explicit instruction?
1: I'll first start off by thanking you for that uh, wonderful recommendation for my chapter. It was a fun project to work on. My background is actually, uh, I started as a fifth grade teacher and then moved into the role of a literacy specialist and coach within two different elementary schools in a school district. And maybe surprising or oddly enough, given some of the messaging that goes around about how we approach reading instruction, my initial encounters or interactions around explicit instruction started with Lucy Calkins. And it was attending those professional developments before there was any published curriculum that Teachers College had put out in terms of units of study or anything like that. It was in those professional developments where she was actually talking about explicitly teaching strategies for writing and providing an architecture of what your mini lesson might look like. That's where I started to look at this idea around explicit instruction. Coinciding with that, when I was a fifth grade teacher, there was a day that I was teaching. Well, there was many days, but there was one day in particular uh, that was kind of a, a transformational moment when I w- it was early in my teaching career, my first year, and and one of my lessons didn't go well. We know this happens with all teachers. Many of our lessons don't go as we intended them to go. But in my beginning teaching career, something didn't go well, and after the school day, um, I did what I normally did, which was go into the classroom next door where my mentor, fifth grade teacher, was working. Because I was lucky enough as a beginning first grade teacher to be paired with the mentor teacher that I was able to work with. And, you know, of course I went in and I was saying, oh, that lesson didn't go very well. The students were doing this and the students didn't do this and the students didn't do this. And the mentor, she stopped me and she said, wait, what were you doing while this was happening? And that prompt right there caused me to take a step back and really think about what I was doing as a teacher when I was getting frustrated that the students weren't getting it. And One of the things that I came to realize in this confluence of what I was picking up from my professional development around this architecture of mini lessons and in this experience of working with teachers was that my teacher language, my talk as a teacher was really consequential for student learning. And it seemed that in what I had been doing in that particular lesson, and I'm sure in many other lessons as well, is I wasn't being clear and explicit enough in what I was trying to ask the students to do. So that was kind of this transformational moment that really moved me towards thinking about teacher talk, teacher language. And that's what moved me into this idea of, or this exploration of explicit instruction and how we are providing explicit instruction within that gradual release model that Pearson and Gallagher had coined many decades ago. So that's where it started. And currently right now, I've realized back then that the architecture of the mini lesson that Lucy provided was a good starting point, but it wasn't enough for me to really understand how to teach explicitly. So I started to explore this more around teacher talk and explicit explanations of comprehension strategies instruction. And that was what led into the dissertation focus that I was engaged in when I was completing my doctoral degree. So my dissertation focus was looking at in my role as a coach, because now I had transitioned in my career to being a coach in a school, looking at how we can support teachers in providing more explicit instruction around the teaching of comprehension during their lessons. I did this with third grade and fifth grade teachers. And we were specifically looking at that combination of the talk or the language choices that the teachers were making and how that related to providing explicit instruction around these comprehension strap. So that's where it started out. And then since that point, while I was completing the dissertation process in my PhD program, I started working as a coach in the university-based reading and writing clinic for students that found reading and writing challenging. And of course, I realized that especially for students that find reading and writing challenging, explicit instruction was essential. And then after that point, when I finished my program and moved into my first career, I had the opportunity to be a director of another university-based reading clinic for reading and writing challenges and brought that experience and those ideas around really being explicit in instruction and intentional in our teacher language into the instruction that we were providing for these students that found reading and writing challenging.
0: Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Robertson. I, I appreciate your perspective because uh, you describe an evolution of thought that you've experienced throughout your career. And it's a story that resonates with me and I'm sure it'll, it'll resonate with many listeners as well. And I think one of the reasons that I find your scholarship very interesting is because of your experience as a classroom, as a coach, as a researcher, and your work with the clinic. So the way you write is a way that I read it and makes it very pragmatic and applicable to me. And I'm sure that'll shine through as we talk throughout the conversation. First, let's frame a little bit about explicit instruction. Can you explain the concept of explicit instruction in the context of teaching reading and give some reasons why it's considered a high leverage approach.
1: For me, and I think for others as well, explicit instruction essentially means that we're not leaving anything to chance for students. You know, we're not leaving kids to discover processes or discover knowledge. And I'm not saying there's no place for inquiry in the classroom. I absolutely believe that inquiry is an important part of classroom instruction that happens. And that is certainly the case for all students. But simply, kids need explanations and models sometimes some students more so than others. So explicit instruction provides those explanations and models for students in a way that allows those concepts, those processes, that knowledge, whatever it happens to be that we are talking about explicitly to come across more efficient for students. So it's characterized in in my eyes by teachers' use of clear language that connects the strategies or the conceptual knowledge to students' real reading purposes. It provides explicit demonstration. It structures a series of scaffolds that guide and help students consolidate their application. And it also, very importantly, provides responsive feedback on students' performance as they're engaged in small little increments. And it prompts and expects students to then apply that knowledge or that process in novel reading contexts. So for me, I see it as high leverage because there are times when students need information explicitly. It does so efficiently for students. And it also sets students up for further reading and learning in terms of that expectation that there's going to be a transfer of strategy use across reading contexts. And those strategies are designed and taught so that it becomes an easier process for students to start to navigate other texts that they're reading. Or it explicitly efficiently provides conceptual knowledge, which needs to be there to serve as an anchor for further reading and writing that students might be doing on a topic.
0: So I appreciate that notion of explicit instruction being intentional teaching, of knowing what the students need and and when they need it, and being able to provide that for them in an efficient way in the service of helping them apply it in text or across text. And I think that's a really great perspective on the use of explicit instruction. Two elements of effective instruction you mentioned were scaffolds and engagement. Can you talk about how those fit in with
1: explicit instruction? Sure. The scaffolds, you know, the support that we provide for students as they're engaging in this instructional process, they're essential because they are the practice with feedback. And I just had mentioned that, you know, explaining and modeling is an important part of explicit instruction, but just explaining and modeling themselves are not enough. We can't just explain and model and then just expect students to have it. We need to provide practice for them, and we do that through the scaffold that we set up for students, which hopefully will provide small steps of application as students are starting to consolidate the knowledge or the processes that they're engaged with. So it's important that it's provided in small steps of application so that we're not taking too far of a leap and expecting students to be doing too much on their own. So thus, those scaffolds optimize time on task for students to be actually engaged in reading because they then have tools to navigate that text more successfully. And they're only being asked to do it in small steps with very responsive feedback from me as the teacher or from whoever the teacher happens to be in how they are engaging in that process or how they are bringing that knowledge that they're learning about to bear in this new context that they're learning in. So at the same time, reading is not just an accumulation of skills. We're applying strategies for real reasons in text that are meaningful, and they offer opportunities for challenge. And when we're doing this with real reasons for reading, students are more likely to persist in these opportunities that are more challenging for them because they have the tools to be successful. Through these scaffolds, these small steps that we're providing, we're creating Or establishing conditions for students to be successful with something that is likely going to be hard for them. And that happens through the scaffolds and feedback that we provide for them. Now, I think that the second part that you talked about was engagement. I just mentioned a moment ago about this idea of persisting because we've established conditions for success through the scaffolds. So by providing these scaffolds and teaching students to be strategic in how they navigate through text, we are providing opportunities for them to be more successful, to persist, and therefore be more cognitively engaged in the text that they're reading. And that's something that explicit instruction does very well. It promotes a high level of cognitive engagement for students. Yet at the same time, I mentioned earlier that we don't just want to accumulate skills and strategies. We want to be doing this for real reasons and that's where the engagement part comes in and you know when i think about engagement i'm always drawn to the work of john guthrie and others and their model of engaged reading which was really looking at that intersection or connection between strategy use and what motivates students to read and we know that strategy use is highly correlated with increased motivation We also know the opposite, that increased motivation is highly correlated with more strategy use. So when I talk about engagement, I'm thinking about the kinds of actions that teachers can put in place that are likely to increase students' motivation to engage more in reading. And part of that is this idea of having knowledge goals. So we're, we're not trying to apply a strategy of summarizing for the sake of summarizing. We're trying to apply the strategy of summarizing because it's going to help us understand more about whatever that knowledge topic happens to be you know, the causes of the American Revolution, the habitats of tigers, whatever it happens to be that is capturing students' interest at that time. We're always reading for real reasons. We're reading to build knowledge of the world, and the strategies are just the tools that are helping us to engage in that process. I think what you discuss there hits on a lot
0: of the current conversation that's happening around reading. In the sense that the idea of a a scaffold of explicit teaching and modeling, that's the beginning of a process, but that there has to be a gradual release, like you mentioned, using the gradual release of responsibility model so that students can be able to have engaged reading. And I I like that connection that you have with scaffolds and engagement and that they can feed on one another.
1: I tend to start with the ideas of engagement in mind. So for me, when I'm conceptualizing these two ideas, engagement comes first for me. And then I'm going to think about what strategies students may need to be more engaged in the content that they're learning. So if explicit instruction is just one of the tools that we happen to use for certain students at certain times, it's not the only approach that we use to instruction in the classroom. But it reminded me of what you were just saying a moment ago of a conversation that I was having with David Pearson several months ago about this whole gradual release, it's been somewhat misunderstood as this I do, we do, you do process, which makes it a little bit more lockstep than it should be. But when that was originally conceptualized, that gradual release of responsibility, it was more of a heuristic of how you're thinking about instruction. And as you are in instruction, maybe you've started with an inquiry approach and then you're seeing that certain students need something more explicit to be able to continue to be successfully engaged. Engaged in that work. Or maybe you have this idea of this topic in mind that you're going to be exploring and you've done work to build interest and engagement for students. And you've decided that in order to successfully navigate this work, They're going to need this, so I'm going to provide it explicitly for them. I tend to start with the ideas of engagement first, and then from there, think responsively of the students who are in front of me and decide, is it going to be beneficial for me to provide explicit instruction around some aspect of this so that they can be successful in building the knowledge that I want them to be able to build? I agree that
0: the gradual release model is more than I do, we do, you do. I've been reading, it's a book from a few years ago, an edited volume about gradual release. But that idea of it when it was initially conceived is how a task is being shared, you know, in the classroom, what proportion of the responsibility is the teacher's role and what proportion is the student's role. And that through that process of a teacher gradually reducing their responsibility as a student is able to gradually increase in their responsibility is the trade-off that happens as part of that gradual release process that Explicit instruction is the far end of that curve of when the teacher has very, very high responsibility and the student is, is having very, very low responsibility. Students capability or their proficiency should be the key fulcrum
1: of where we're at in that
0: task or role responsibility sharing.
1: Right. And when we think about that, the explicit instruction can be this larger approach of me explaining and modeling and then providing the scaffold and all of that to be able to support students. But the explicit instruction also can show up just within the feedback that I provide to students based on how they've attempted to do something already. Or just stepping in to say, you know, this letter is the letter A. That's an explicit explanation that is following up from how students are engaging in the work that they're doing.
0: Absolutely. Knowledge building is a very hot topic right now. And we've already touched a little bit on knowledge building, but how do you connect the relationship between explicit instruction and knowledge building?
1: Well, I mean, I have just talked a little bit about starting with engagement and knowledge building first. I don't think there's anything that we're doing in the classroom, whether it's decoding work or fluency work or, you know, phonemic awareness, comprehension strategies, whatever it happens to be is always done in service of helping students to build more knowledge of the world that's around them. So I don't think we should be doing anything in the classroom that becomes decontextualized from that too much. Maybe there's a little bit of decontextualized work, but we have to take the steps to bring it back to how this connects to real world reading, how this connects to real world writing, to real world building knowledge of the experiences in life that's around us. So there's different types of knowledge that I think that we can get when we are engaging in explicit instruction. The first is kind of a meta knowledge of reading processes. You know, if I'm going to be providing explicit instruction around a comprehension strategy or a decoding strategy or something like that, I want to make sure that I'm providing for those students knowledge of what that strategy is, how you engage in that strategy. So that's, you know, declarative knowledge and procedural knowledge of how we do that but I also want to make sure I'm providing that knowledge about when and where that strategy should be part of their repertoire of the work that they're doing. So that more conditional knowledge, so that students understand why they should be using this, how it's going to be helpful to them in different contexts, so that then they're more likely to engage in transferring that strategy from one context to another, if they have that conditional knowledge. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, you know, explicitly teaching strategies alone does little to compensate for a lack of content knowledge for students. Like we can't just teach strategies and expect students to be skilled readers. You know, we need that content knowledge. And I, I tend to try to refer to it as content knowledge as opposed to background knowledge, because when we're thinking about providing explicit explanations, sometimes we need to build knowledge for them, not knowledge that they already have in their background. That's only related to the experiences. And they only get those experiences from what, you know, at least in a classroom setting, what I'm providing for them in terms of instructional context. So, you know, we can't compensate for a lack of content knowledge just by teaching strategies and skills alone. And the whole reason why we engage in strategic actions is to learn content. You know, that's the ultimate goal is developing more knowledge of the world. And I would argue also taking action in some way of that knowledge that you are developing about the world. So as students become more versed in their ability to strategically process a text... No. I'm not talking when I say strategically process. I'm not saying like we should spend three weeks teaching them how to predict and then three weeks teaching them how to summarize a text and then another three weeks on questioning. I tend to think of strategies and how I might approach engaging strategically in text more in relation to thinking about the context of the text and the kinds of strategic actions that we need to apply in order to get at that content of the text more deeply. And that often happens, you know, there's certain processes that we might use before we start reading and while we're reading and after reading that help us to engage in- more deeply in that content. And so when we're able to do that, we have those processes more down, we're more versed in those processes, then we're able to read more. We're able to read more about that topic. We're able to read more about other topics. And the more broadly we read or the more deeply that we read on a particular topic, it's going to facilitate students' acquisition of more vocabulary, more linguistic structures, more conceptual knowledge. So, you know, Marilyn Adams back in 2011 wrote that knowledge is truly the most powerful determinant of reading comprehension. And I'm not saying by making that statement that if we just give kids background knowledge explicitly, they're going to be good readers. We need to build knowledge and we need to hold this idea of building knowledge as the reason why we're teaching skills and strategies. But we also need to provide for them particular strategies that are going to be useful in helping them navigate texts more independently.
0: You know, I've seen in some spheres, strategies and knowledge building being pitted one against another. And I appreciate your notion there that just because strategy instruction has happened poorly in some places does not mean that it is incompatible with building. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about teacher talk, because this is one of the areas I find the most interesting When I think about a scaffold, I've become convinced and your work has helped me become convinced that a huge part of the way that we scaffold instruction comes from teacher language and how a teacher is structuring the learning environment on what they are saying. And I think you break it down really nicely to help show how the way we talk is really how we scaffold our students. So can you provide a little bit about why the language a teacher uses matter and then the different types of talk that a teacher engages in as different types of scaffolds in that gradual release or explicit instruction process?
1: Earlier I talked about, you know, how I came to this notion or this area of inquiry around teachers' talk back as a classroom teacher and then working in the clinical context and things like that. I really see teacher language as a untapped resource or underutilized. Resource for teachers that's really consequential. I mean, just in how we phrase a sentence can influence how students receive instruction in several different ways, just including changing one word can change the perception that someone gets from what we have provided through our talk. And whether that be related to teaching a strategy explicitly or helping students feel more welcome and valued in the classroom, our language choices matter and they're consequential. So the way that I've thought about this around explicit instruction, and this is where it, it kind of built off of the work that I started and mentioned earlier around that architecture of the mini lesson that Lucy Calkins had first introduced me to back when. But then I said, well, it's not quite enough. I need to think about it more. So that architecture had like the started with the connection to previous work, and then it went into teach the strategy, and then it went into provide guided practice, which is loosely following that explicit framework structure. But when I was trying to think about this in relation to the work around engagement and establishing knowledge goals is very important for motivating students to read, but also getting them to be more cognitively engaged in that work, because that's where they start to see real purpose in the reading work that they're doing. So goal setting is a very important part of this work because it connects in with that engagement part. I think, you know, that motivation part, you're not summarizing because I'm asking you to summarize as the teacher. I'm going to make clear for you that we're summarizing because it's going to help us with this particular knowledge that we're trying to build. Um, And today getting into all of the work around, you know, interests in instruction. But there's there's a whole realm of work that looks at the role that interest plays in students' achievement and in students' engagement. And that's not saying that students should only do stuff that they're interested in, but there's certain things that we can do as teachers to actually peak interest in students. So with that in mind, the goal setting talk is very important because it establishes the purpose for what we're doing it's important that we be very clear in that goal-setting talk so that students have an absolute understanding of here's why we're engaging in this strategy. And this is what's going to help us make sure that it's not strategy for strategy's sake. It's strategy in service of building knowledge about the world. And that's going to happen in the goal-setting talk that we are providing for students. And then from there, in order for the explicit instruction to be explicit, to be a very efficient process, I need to explain. And model. So this draws on the work that started back in, you know, whether it was the early somewhere around there that a lot of the cognitive psychologists and others were doing around explicit explanations of strategy use and explaining what a strategy is and how we use the strategies and that conditional knowledge of when and where we use the strategies. So that's where our talk around there becomes very important because we need to make sure that we're providing those types of knowledge for students. What is it? How do we do it? And when and why might we use this particular strategy? But I'm going Going to link that to the goals that we have established earlier. And then as part of that, then it becomes the model where I'm actually thinking aloud about how to engage in these procedures as we're moving through the process. But I think the part about the talk that is essential for me there is thinking more about uh, being very intentional in that I want to make sure that students are paying attention to certain things like watch me when I do this or I'm now going to show you how to do this and I'm going to be very explicit in that language but it also allows me to be cognizant of my pacing when I'm teaching because I think if we're not being very intentional in our language choices we can tend to wander in how we explain things a little bit, which can, you know, students might lose focus or they might not pick up on the key ideas or the lesson might start to go on for 20, 25 minutes before I've even actually had students do anything. And I want to efficiently provide some knowledge to them so that they can start to engage in the process because it's in the scaffolding and the feedback where the real, you know, application of that knowledge is going to happen. That's when they're going to start to consolidate those understandings and take them with them in this human way as they're engaging in more work. So I see the focus of talk as being most consequential for me in those initial parts around making sure that I'm being very precise in my language so that I can deliver this content as efficiently as possible in a way that's really drawing students' attention to those key aspects, those, as Gerald Duffy would say, the secrets for how you do this, draw their attention to those particular aspects. But then I think beyond that initial modeling and goal setting, you know, I want to keep that in mind. It's really in the facilitative talk where I think the heart of that work is. And that comes back to what I just said a moment ago about it getting them into that gaffolded practice with feedback. As soon as I can, I want to be efficient in those explanations. But then I'm going to be using more facilitative talk as they're engaging in the work. I'm now turning some responsibility over to them with feedback from me. So I want to think about how can I do that in ways that are going to ensure more cognitive engagement on their part. So I'm going to ask them to start to engage in some of these processes. And I tend to do that in more open-ended ways first. So now we're going to read this next section of text and it's your turn to try this out. Let's read this and see what you're thinking. I'm going to leave it more open-ended for them and provide feedback because if I jump right in with very targeted questions, very explicit, closed-ended questions, or I tell them exactly what to do, then I'm, in my mind, doing more work than they're doing. And, I, and I'm trying to turn responsibility over to them. So I think about my facilitative questions as starting during the scaffolded part, as starting more open-ended. But then as I listen to students and I start to provide feedback for students, I'm deciding whether I need to become more targeted in my questioning or not so that I've tried it open-ended. I'm seeing how they're responding. I followed up with maybe another open-ended question and they're they're still not getting at the idea that I want. So now I need to become more targeted to draw their attention to something because I'm realizing that either my initial scaffold wasn't clear enough, the text is not clear enough for them, or something is not connecting for them. So I need to be more explicit in my questioning that's happening. And then the feedback part is a another place where the talk really matters because, I mean, the There's lots and lots of work around the importance of feedback and that it shouldn't just be good job, that kind of empty praise. Just like in my explicit explanation at the start of the lesson, I want to make sure that my feedback is letting them know exactly explicitly what it is that they're doing well or not doing and how that's influencing their ability to get knowledge from the text. So oftentimes my feedback might not even have the word good job or whatever in it. It might just be like, oh, you know, I noticed that you were able to pull that phrase out of this sentence and connect that back into your summary. That feedback right there, even though I didn't say good job, is telling them exactly what they were doing that was helpful to them in engaging in this summarizing work. And that's more consequential to these ideas of them taking something and transferring it to a new context. Is that, as Peter Johnson would say, that noticing and naming of what students are doing in the classroom and how that is connected to the ongoing learning that they're, that they're part of. Yeah. So, with that,
0: I hope the listeners can see why the talk we use is really so central. You described goal setting talk as here's our goal, here's what we're trying to do, here's why it's a big deal, and here's how we're going to get there. And then the explanatory talk being the teacher explaining, showing, and modeling how to do it. But I've found both working with teachers and with undergraduates that the facilitative talk can be really tricky because it's not the teacher modeling and doing a really, really heavy scaffold. But it's not the students working independently either. And it's being able to find ways in our language to share in the responsibility of the task. But it's also a bit of a dance because you're seeing how, based on how the students respond, is how you're designing your response. And so it's not as linear as perhaps some graphics would portray that it is because we're trying to be very responsive to the students in that instruction.
1: Right. So in my mind, I take time to you know, establish the goals and explain and model something, but then it almost morphs into more of a discussion-based approach about the text as we're engaging in trying to apply those particular strategies. And I think that's partly why some of these well-researched approaches to strategies like reciprocal teaching are so efficacious in terms of their outcomes. Yes, there's four strategies that we're trying to work on, but the goal is not just to teach those strategies. I mean, really the heart of reciprocal teaching instruction is dialogic processes that are going on as students are discussing the text, and they're just using the strategies as tools for engaging in that discussion about the text. And that's where Absolutely. the you know, talk comes in.
0: So let's let's talk about supporting diverse classrooms where students are coming from different linguistic or cultural backgrounds. What can teachers do to help support everyone's reading skills and reading comprehension when a classroom may be very diverse?
1: Well, I think you'd be hard pressed to find any classroom in this day and age that doesn't have at least some measure of, of diversity across a full spectrum of ways that people can identify diversely. So, you know, explicit instruction, as I've talked about earlier, is just one of the tools that we have. And it starts with knowing who your students are, because we need to know who needs explicit instruction of content knowledge. We need to know who needs explicit instruction around particular strategic processes. We need to know, you know, when do they need it? For what purposes? With always maintaining the focus on optimizing engagement and knowledge building. So when I think about the diverse students that we have in a classroom, we also need to think about the diverse instructional approaches we can use in a classroom to help students, you know, explicit Instruction, this model of explaining and modeling something and providing scaffolded practice and then helping them move to independence is one approach, but it's not the approach to instruction. So when we think about who we have in our classroom, who is coming in, we just need to know that this is one of the pieces that's in our toolbox that we can use with students, but we need to know who needs it and when do they need it.
0: And I would argue that part of knowing students is in quantitative, data-based ways, but also in qualitative, knowing who they are and the cultures they're coming from. And both of those together is where that responsiveness can really be powerful.
1: Right. And if we start with the ideas of engagement and, and motivation in mind, and by saying I'm starting with that, I'm not saying that students are strongly motivated and engaged in reading before they're good at reading. You know, I'm not trying to make that argument. But even though we know that as readers become more skilled, they become more engaged, I still like to start with those ideas of drawing on students' experiences, drawing on the knowledge that they bring to the classroom, drawing on all of the students that are part of this classroom. How do I need to think about my instruction to move these curricular goals forward in ways that are going to maintain and build on that engagement that they have with text that's going to build on the funds of knowledge that students are bringing? And then within that, what are the ways that I need to get at this knowledge with students? one of those tools is providing instruction explicitly. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Know that if I know that students are not coming in with the background knowledge that they need to be successful in this unit, I need to explicitly provide some background knowledge for them to be successful, but maybe not all the students need that.
0: In your chapter, you also have three potential roadblocks that you've seen to effective uh, explicit instruction. Can you explain each of these roadblocks and how they can be overcome?
1: Sure. So the first one was related to strategy use in particular, because oftentimes when we think about explicit instruction, we think about explicitly teaching comprehension strategies, even though we've today talked about explicit instruction can be around building content knowledge. You know, it can be around it. So even though we've said it can be around building content knowledge, the first roadblock is just this lack of awareness on teachers parts. And I'm not saying this as a way to say that teachers are not good teachers or not skilled Readers, but once we become more automatic in our reading, once we become a more skilled reader, we some how or sometimes lose that awareness of what are the strategic actions that we're engaging in because we've become so automatic or more automatic in how we are engaging in something. I think about this like driving a car. You know, driving a car is countless strategic actions all the time based on what's happening where I'm moving my vehicle, when I'm coming to red lights and what the cars around me and the people around me are doing and what the weather is. And there's all of these strategic actions that I need to be considering but sometimes I just end up on autopilot and I start driving somewhere where I wasn't even expecting to drive. And I'm like, how did I end up here? That's not where I was planning on going because I just got lost in the automaticity of the process of driving and wasn't deeply engaged in thinking about that work. So part of it is teachers need to or more skilled readers need to kind of quaint themselves with the awareness of what kinds of things that they do when their meeting breaks down when they're trying to read a text, because for. For the most part you know we engage in strategic actions more so when we know that content's going to be challenging or somehow our comprehension is breaking down in some way so what do we do when our meaning or our comprehension is breaking down in the text when I need to engage in this more complex text because it's some new content that I need to learn about that I don't have a lot of background knowledge on or content knowledge on, as I should say, based on what I've been saying earlier, how might I engage in this process to help me learn and retain this information, apply this information, critique this information, and so forth? So I think part of it is skilled readers becoming more aware of their own strategic thinking. And by their own strategic thinking, I think that's almost just as important as saying, well, you know, do I predict? Well, maybe you predict. But again, I think of it more as like, well, I'm going to read this novel. What kinds of things do I do as a reader before I start reading a novel? Maybe it's not a whole lot. Maybe I pick it up and I'm thinking about the title and I'm looking for something that I just kind of want to lose myself in and enjoy a little bit because I've been reading a lot of other stuff and I might read the back of the book. I mean, these are all strategic actions. They're not very involved strategic actions, but they're getting me to think about the book and you know, I don't sit down and write a prediction about what's going to happen. But I'm just trying to make myself aware again of how I approach different types of books. You know, what am I doing as I'm reading a book that's become more automatic? I'm likely flipping back through pages, reminding myself of something that happened earlier in the text, or you know, I've read something and I need to go back and check on that information because I'm looking for links and ideas. Those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about readers becoming more aware of in their processing because those are the kinds of actions that keep readers focused on the content of the text, but are also consequential in really engaging in with that text that they're reading more deeply. Second roadblock, we've talked about this already, but strategies being seen as the end product of instruction. I'm teaching students how to infer for the sake of teaching them how to infer. And just that idea of of always connecting it to knowledge, you know, it's the tool, the strategies that we're teaching them are tools for building knowledge through text. And if I'm not helping them make those links and see how inferring is helping them build knowledge from that text, then I haven't met the goal of teaching them how to infer in my mind. And then the third roadblock is one that we've also been talking about today. And that's the idea of fading too quickly. You know, we explain and we model. Sometimes what someone says is a model is actually an explanation. So there's that part of it too. Sometimes what they think is an explanation is actually just giving them directions for doing a task, which is different as well. So we explain and we model, but then we go right into expecting them to be able to do it independently. You know, as you just mentioned a few minutes ago with this big wide space that occurs between the initial explanation and modeling and the independent practice of when they're doing it really on their own, that middle space where all of that facilitative talk and that feedback is happening around their application of text is faded too quickly. And students aren't ready to do it independently yet. We haven't provided sequential opportunities for engaging in this with feedback. And we have to keep in mind that as we are fading these opportunities, we, we may need to step back and become more explicit again, or we may not. It, it kind of depends on the context because there's interactions between how the students are engaging in a particular task with a particular text at a particular point in time. And they may be doing a wonderful job of making inferences about characters in a novel, but not being able to take this idea of how they're inferring information over to the informational text that they're reading, because that provides a different context, a different type of text, even though the strategy or strategic action is still inferring information. So we can't assume that when we slightly change the context, that performance is going to stay the same. I was just thinking about this, actually, the other day, I ride a mountain bike all the time, And I've been really working on my skills and strategies of how I ride over roots and rocks when I'm climbing up. And I was riding this particular trail that I I did like three times in a row and I was getting over all of these roots and rocks, no problem. And it seemed to be working wonderfully. And then I changed the context slightly on the next ride and I did it as it was starting to get dark. And all of those roots and rocks that I was able to get over just fine, I was stumbling over. Because the context had changed slightly, even though I knew how to approach them, something was different. So it's the same kind of idea. We, we have to always be ready to, to say, OK, I'm changing the context. Do I need to re-explain something? Or as students are engaging in it in this new context, I have to be willing to step them back and say, let me show you how I do it in this context. And now let's practice again. So fading, fading too quickly, I think, is one of the biggest roadblocks that we run into around explicit instruction.
0: Yeah, I've described that with my undergraduates as, you know, just showing a kid, hey, this is how I'm going to do the doggy paddle, and then, okay, you're in the pool now, good luck. Huh. You know, that there, there needs to be some gradual release there. And to your first roadblock, I've noticed as I've gone through my doctoral training and now at the university that... I've become more aware of what I'm doing when I read. And something I just like to pay attention to now is really complex syntax. So when there's multiple nouns and verbs happening within a sentence or within a couple sentences, and I I think it's given me an appreciation of when we are reading text, there's a lot that our brain is keeping track of. And there's a lot that the brain has to prune out in order for the big ideas to really float to the top. And so being able to... You know whether we're talking about syntax or whether we're talking about making inferences, being able to unlock that for our students, not having comprehension or any reading aspect of reading be this black box, but having it be transparent, that that's our role as the teacher in the classroom, as the most proficient reader in the classroom, to be able to show what we do, what makes us skilled, and being able to uh, impart that to our students through explicit instruction, I think is really powerful.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of the apprentice approach to teaching. And it's also the idea because you mentioned, you know, when I'm reading these more challenging texts or these more complex texts and looking at syntax, I mean, those are the contexts when using strategies is warranted. If a kid are reading books, that they're able to read without very much teacher help at all. And and they're getting the ideas. They don't need to slow down and apply prediction and, and inference strategies because There's no, as David Pearson would say, there's no clunks that are happening there. It's just all clicking for them. So we need to think about what do we do when we are approaching a text where there's going to be clunks. That's when we have to be really cognizant of how we are strategically processing through that content. And we need to be able to point out these difficult parts for students and, and how we can work through them. We've covered a lot
0: of ground and I appreciate your insight on the topic. Do you have any final considerations on
1: explicit instruction? that it's uh, very hard to do well, but with the importance of talk, teacher's talk, that is, I think there's two parts to it that are really important to help student- teachers engage in it more effectively. And, and one is opportunities for reflection. If, if your talk is important, as I think, to engaging in ex- explicit instruction well, then how can you create opportunities to reflect on your talk? Whether you are not necessarily sharing it with others, but, you know, audio recording yourself and listening back to it. Say, you know, did I very concisely explain what the strategy was and why the strategy was useful and and how to do it? So providing or finding opportunities, ways to engage in reflection. Because when it's something like talk, you can try to rely on your memory, but likely you're not going to recall those small details of how you said a particular sentence. The other part that I find very important, and I found very important as I was on this journey myself of becoming more versed in providing explicit explanations in particular, was to actually script out what I was going to say as part of my lesson planning process. So uh, and I do this now with pre-service teachers, too, when we talk about teaching strategies, or whether it's decoding or things like that, rather than create the typical pre-service lesson plan that's 15 pages long, and has, you know standards attached to it and all of this stuff, we actually say, you know, okay, in your goal-setting section, script out what you're going to say to the students. This should only be like 30 seconds, you know, one minute at the most. Script out how you're going to explain this concept. And then it's not the idea of then taking that lesson and reading the script, but by scripting through, you're being very intentional and reflective around the talk that you're trying to use as you're planning this lesson. And I have found that by actually writing it down, it helped me to then be able to do something very close to that without wandering all over the place in my lesson and without having to read the script. So I think reflection and and intentional planning around scripting language choices are two, in my mind, important considerations to engage in this process efficiently and effectively. Wonderful.
0: Well, thank you for your thoughts on explicit instruction. A final question for you. What is currently filling your literacy cup?
1: Well, you know, we've been talking a little bit about teachers and their understanding of explicit instruction, for example and what i've been working on a lot recently relates to talk it's still trying to understand how we help teachers help students it, it's a very broad state but you know we know a lot about what can work explicit instruction is one of those approaches that we know can work we know a lot about teaching students to become better decoders and more fluent readers and stronger comprehenders but how do we translate that and support literacy leaders, such as coaches, administrators in supporting teachers for sustained change. So that's where I've been a lot lately is thinking about how we're supporting the literacy leaders that are in schools in helping their teachers to continually be advancing their instructional practices towards more robust use of evidence-based practices in the classroom. And a lot of that, in my mind, has happened through the talk That happens between those administrators and those coaches working with those teachers. So a lot of work examining coaching conversations to find out, you know, when these coaching conversations are working, what are the coach and teacher actually talking about? Because, we, you know, we say a coach is supposed to model practices and they're supposed to provide a trusting relationship. Well, we know that, but what does that actually look like? What's that procedural knowledge of how coaching interactions actually occur or how we help support administrators in understanding the bigger pictures of, of instruction and therefore their ability to support teachers and engaging in that. So that's where a lot of my work has been lately.
0: Wonderful. Dr. Dana Robertson, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jake. It was a pleasure.
0: A great big thank you to Dr. Robertson for joining us on the show. I have a quick takeaway for you about explicit instruction and I want to talk about why explicit instruction matters. Explicit instruction matters because we want to be efficient in our instruction. Dr. Robertson referred to it as, we don't want to leave anything to chance. And so rather than having a student figure out what diagraph TH says or the different Uh, the different sounds that digraph th can say, or figuring out how authors use text structure to organize meaning within their passage. That's something that I as the teacher, me as the expert, I can impart to my students through explicit instruction and gradually so that they can then readily turn around and use that in text. So for me, explicit instruction is all about efficiency, that I want students to be able to have a large volume of reading throughout their day, throughout their reading life. And I want them to read across a wide variety of genres and text styles and text complexities. That should be a non-negotiable part of our students' reading diet. But they cannot have that, or they cannot effectively have that if they cannot access the text. And so for me, it matters because I want my early readers I want them to be able to crack the code quick because if we can do that efficiently, we can move on to some really complex, rich text that they now are able to access. And for the older grades, I care about it because complex text is really complex. The authors use multiple different types of structures and styles to structure their texts, especially in story or narrative text. There's lots of inferences that readers need to make And if there's things that are consistent in text, whether it's text structure, whether it's syntax, anaphora, whether it is multisyllabic words, whether it is all the vowel sounds that we use, whatever it is, if there's things that I can impart to my students in order to help them access the text more meaningfully, feel that as the teacher, I ethically have the responsibility to do that. Because as I help my students access texts, we can have what Dr. Robertson spent a lot of time talking about, we can have engagement and motivation. I believe students inherently like to learn things and they enjoy to learn things about the world around them. They like to have knowledge being built. And we can do that through text extremely readily. And that's where the role of explicit instruction is. So for me, that's what explicit instruction is about. It's about effectively helping students access text, but it is a means to an end and not necessarily the end in and of itself. Alrighty, that is all that I have for you today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Until next time, let's work together to make reading and writing instruction even better.